This week on New Mexico in Focus, as we head into the holidays, COVID-19 threatens to overrun New Mexico's healthcare system. As we look at the holiday season, this is the time when people really like to enjoy their family. But unfortunately for 2020, this is not the year to do that. Plus, lawmakers prepare for a special session and ponder how to handle the 60-day gathering in 2021. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. The unfortunate records keep falling. New Mexico has topped 2,000 coronavirus cases in a single day and now threatens to hit 3,000 just days later. A week into what the governor calls a reset, we're discovering just how bad the situation has become. That's especially important given the upcoming holiday. We'll get a few words of advice on celebrating with family, though there's no safe way to do that unless you're already in the same household. We'll talk about the surprise enclosure of the emergency unit in a hospital that serves the native population, the upcoming legislative session or two, and of course, COVID. That's where we'll start with the line. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus for Friday, November 20th, 2020. You just heard from Gene Grant, our host, giving you a taste of what's on the show this week. Uh, and there is a lot of great stuff in here. Uh, important stuff. COVID-19 hitting new milestones this week. Cases continue to climb. Hospitals continue to be overwhelmed. Uh, the governor addressed us all again on Thursday afternoon, which was after we taped. So there is some new information that came out after, uh, including a case count that uh, we have not seen before, over 3,000. The governor said expect those cases to bounce all over the place for a while uh, before hopefully they settle in at a much lower clip. Again, lots of messages uh, to uh, unfortunately forgo many of our favorite uh, holiday traditions and gatherings this year to keep everyone safe from COVID-19. Um, we're going to hear about that here in just a minute from the line opinion panel. Also on the line opinion panel, we'll be talking about uh, another COVID related story. That was news this week of the closing of a hospital on the Acoma Pueblo and in Indian Health Services facility. Uh, a lot of consternation and concern about why and how that happened and the communication behind that. We'll dive in to all of that, as well as one of the things that came out of the governor's press conference was a special session she wants to have on Tuesday with the sole purpose of working on relief for businesses in New Mexico and the unemployed. We'll have more for you on that next week, but we'll hear from the line on that. Joining us on the line this week, regulars Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, former House Minority Whip Dan Foley, and attorney Laura Sanchez. And also we welcome back to the table Giovanna Rossi. And by table, I mean Zoom, of course. Everything we're doing right now, pretty much exclusively by Zoom as we do our best to be COVID responsible as well. Without any further ado, let's head over to the line table for that discussion about the uh, reset, the new shelter-in-place order that's in effect for at least another week. After that, we will see. But here now, host Gene Grant. This is bad. There's no need to sugarcoat any assessment of New Mexico's coronavirus situation. The question now is, by issuing a stay-at-home order, are better days ahead? 
That's our first question for the Line Opinion panel. Let me introduce them. We've got guest panelist Giovanna Rossi with us. She's president of Collective Action Strategies. We're also joined by former House Rep and Line Regular Daniel Foley up there in Rio Rancho. Line Regular and Attorney Laura Sanchez is always here. And another Line Regular is with me this week. That would be Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. Tom, I want to point out that this isn't as, as strict as the March shutdown. We all know that. But as I said, the question is, will it be enough? Let's just start as a baseline question right there. What does your gut tell you? Uh, well, it has to be enough. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. kind of the situation that we're in right now. You know, we've got through uh, Thanksgiving uh, to see just how much of an impact it will take. Uh, but, you know, I, the proof will be in the pudding. You know, if all of a sudden uh, infection rates are down, then it worked. If not, then, you know, it didn't. Mm -hmm. Dan, let me go to you. What's been the reaction from your peer group, your friends, either down in Roswell, other parts of the state or here in Rio Rancho? What are you, what are you hearing out there? Concerning... The, oh, the lockdown, shut, the lockdown you know, right. The, re, the reset, we should call it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously, Gene, that's a loaded question for me. I mean, you know, the circles I roll around mm -hmm. in, are, you know, they're not they're not supportive of this. Right. I mean, they 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 say um, it's been interesting. I, I will tell you, you know, a lot of people are not opposed to the masks and not opposed to the social distancing. They just can't get their head around. So, you know, I can't go to a friend's restaurant and eat, but I can go stand in line for three hours to get into Costco, or right. I can go stand in line to get into Safeway, or, you know, I can go to a bicycle repair shop, but I can't, uh, you know, but I can't go, you know, do the things that, that I want to do. So I think that's, that's the kind of, I think people are just, uh, at least people that, that I, that I hear from are just, and they, they also are saying, look, we did this once before, you know, we, we shut down and then, as soon as we opened back up, we had a spike again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just think I think it's clear that there's really not going to be a way to contain this until there's some sort of a vaccine or the antibodies are built up, because it seems like every time we shut down. There I, want is make, a, I want to make sure you're clear here. Are you saying this? There's nothing else to be done until the vaccine. Isn't this the way that no, we're doing it now? That I said I said that that I don't think it, see, it seems when you look across the country with closings and openings and the expanding and contracting of 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 the orders in other states mm -hmm. they seem to you know that the numbers seem to you know go with them right gotcha. as you contract everything the numbers go down the minute you open it back up the numbers start to go up again so it seems like it's um it, it doesn't seem like anything has worked once you open it back up again so i'm not sure i think that's what people are frustrated about right they're like so we're going to close for two weeks the numbers are going to go down we're going to get told we can go out again the numbers going to go back up we're going to get told we have to you know shelter at home orders again so um i i just don't know it doesn't seem like there's much that can be done uh you know we're almost at a year mm -hmm. into this now. it doesn't seem like it seems like it's been the same yo-yo hey giovanna i gotta ask you know on thursday as we tape this you know, the governor has her revised uh, reset, so to speak, that went into place. But clarifying that essential retailers aren't just big box stores, and, you know, Ross and others have been kind of pointed out there. You know, there's a lot of heartburn out there from retailers, local retailers, who feel like they're being unfairly treated here. How do we balance the needs of a local business with balancing the needs to keep us all safe here? What, what, what's, is there a better way than what we're seeing now? Yeah, I mean, this is such a deep and broad topic. And, and you know, usually when we see major, um, major issues in the community, and we have two now, we have an economic, you know, crisis, and we have a, a, a health pandemic. 
So we're dealing with with double, um, you know, problems here. Um, and usually in this kind of situation, you have legislators and and policymakers spending a lot of time uh, looking at research, you know, developing policies, um, and and we just haven't had the the time to do that. We haven't had the the resources to do that. But so we've had since uh, we've had since spring. When you think about it, you know. Right, but the research that's coming out now, yeah. uh, it is is new right like gotcha. we didn't have we didn't have anything to look at before mm -hmm. um and uh and we've seen the governor responding in the way that that she has um without you know right or wrong it's just the way it is you know without the input of a lot of other you know wider constituents um so but the question about local business i think the new clarification um of the of the public health order is going to help um but you know it's just tough it's tough and there's a fundamental question i think here that isn't being addressed in any of this i think we're we're talking about you know do, do these little solutions work does this effort work over here is this two weeks going to make a difference there's a much broader more fundamental question at hand here which is you know how can we as a society uh have a strong economy and also take care of the health of our biggest asset, which is our people. And, and we're not addressing the, the fundamentals here. And mm -hmm. there seems to be that those two things are in conflict, actually. Mm -hmm. Laura, you know, the, the revised order is a reminder to bigger, bigger retailers, not necessarily big box, but bigger retailers that a third of your income has to come from food products things like that. Here's a list of folks that are still open. Dillard's, Macy's, Bed Bath & Beyond, Dick's Sporting Goods, Kohl's, Tuesday Morning, Big Five, Burlington Coat Factory. It's a long list. Do you hear any food in any of those, in any of those folks? Why are they open? Well, I thought that the recent revision was supposed to address those, uh, those retailers as, as not being eligible to be open, but mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong. That's how I understood the most recent revision to be. But the bottom line is that I, I do think that those particular retailers shouldn't have an expectation of being um, open. Uh, if they weren't open in the previous, um, the, the previous step that we took in the lockdown back in uh, March and April, I don't see why they would be open this time. Nothing has really changed in the, in the type of products that they, um, that they provide. Mm -hmm. But it does sound like the one thing that's different, I think, for, for us here in New Mexico, that wasn't the case before, when we shut down before everything was shut down across the country. So you couldn't even do online sales you, or you couldn't purchase anything and have it delivered. Now um, you can. So it's a state by state sort of um, issue mm -hmm. and other states are still able to do some commerce. So if you have some online purchases that you need to make from some of those retailers, especially going into the holiday season, you can actually do that online and still get your, your uh, products delivered. Right. There's also still delivery of um, certain um, you know, DoorDash and Grubhub and all those Postmate kind of um, services are still delivering. So I think it's really important that we take a step back and try to support our local businesses that are that are struggling to stay open. Um, there's a couple of, of local places that I like very much that I try to um, order from at least once a week just to keep them afloat. Mm -hmm. um, and anytime we have any, you know, need to purchase anything, um, we, I try to go with a local um, vendor if we can. But I, I think there's just so much anxiety right now. You know, the holidays in general coming up provides a, a level of anxiety for people, even outside of a pandemic. 
now there's a pandemic going on and there's a lot of uncertainty with that. There's a lot of tension. And then there's a lot of economic insecurity out there. So I think that all of that is is creating this perfect storm for people to really have right. severe uh, fatigue when it comes to staying home and just anxieties through the roof. And so I'm re it's really a public health, mental health crisis at this point. That's a good point. Hey, Tom, let me read you something from the governor's office when the blowback started to come in about this bigger retailer staying open. Uh, in part, it says, I understand people's frustrations, but the state can't write a public health order that goes through and identifies every single store. What the state can do is identify baseline principles and convey them to the public and to different industries. Now, end quote. Let me ask you a question on that. You know, I would expect, and maybe I'm just off here, but I would expect that since spring, a county like Bernalillo County by November, late November as we sit here, very much could have gone through and identified industries, stores, whatever, that would be easily able to follow the governor's criteria but they've been swept under the rug under this long sweeping, everyone must close kind of a thing. Has, have we gone wrong here by not trying to identify industries and stores to stay open in a more nuanced way? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of really good studies out there. You circulated one uh, from uh, MIT that really kind of addressed you know, the key issues as far as criteria about what stores should open and which stores are probably riskier to have open. Right. Here Here's the thing is the big challenge for small business specifically, because big business, as we can see, as we've talked about, the big box stores are going to find a way to adapt. Uh, the smaller businesses are not. And uh, so, you know, there was about two months of planning that went in to establishing the public health orders. At least that's what the governor's office had shared early on, that they had been studying, you know, how to, you know, uh, really protect New Mexicans. Uh, two months before the uh, the public health orders were issued back on March 11th. Mm -hmm. And since that time, um, the state has come out with, you know, different criteria for small businesses, for all businesses, as far as, uh, you know, the Stay Safe uh, program. Uh, you know, people have, companies have registered for that. They've followed the rules. Uh, they've done, they've checked all the boxes that the state says that they're supposed to check. Then all of a sudden it's just like, well, you know what? That doesn't count anymore right. uh, because the rules are changed. And so in essence, um, you know, the rug has been pulled out from underneath a lot of small businesses, no more so than what we saw with the uh, travel tourism industry. Granted, nobody's really going to be traveling right now. Everybody's preparing for those next steps as far as the, the travel environment starting up again. But when you look at what has happened with the lodgers tax, uh, it's just that industry, the industry has been decimated. And so, you know, you have companies that play by the rules uh, and then they had the rules changed, even though they're following them and, right. you know, it impacts small business the most. Hey, Giovanna, Thanksgiving's next Thursday. As we all know, huge family weekend. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, you know, are people canceling plans? I'm not, you know, my peer group, maybe it's the people I hang out with on Facebook and stuff. I see a lot of plans being made for Thanksgiving, almost in defiance. <laughs> what, what are you sensing out there? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, first of all, um, I just want to pick up on what Tom was saying. And, and I just want to say, you know, nothing about this is fair, right? Like, let's just take the word fair out of this. Uh, it's just not fair. And and the fact that we're focusing, you know, so much on business and I, I get it. I'm a small business owner too. Um, granted, I don't have a storefront and it's totally different, but, but um, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair. As Laura said, the mental health crisis is, is unreal. It, it's incredibly damaging to 
as I said earlier, our biggest asset, which is our people, right? Our human beings. So businesses are made up of humans and we have to take care of our humans. And, and this is, you know, it's just, it's just not fair on any, on any level, but for Thanksgiving, um, folks in my team, we have all shared our plans. We're all staying home. We're not sharing Thanksgiving, um, outside of the people that we live with. And I think that is the general kind of rule of thumb here is that, um, that is the best way to stay safe and keep others safe. You know, we all have older uh, relatives that we want to uh, see again next Thanksgiving. And, and this is really, you know, our contribution. It's not fair. Um, I don't think that we have to cancel Thanksgiving. Like, I, I don't think it's canceling. I think we can still give thanks. We can be grateful. We can eat turkey. You know, we can do the things. Um, we just need to, to be smart and follow the public health order. Daniel, what are you hearing out there for Thanksgiving? Just give it up about a minute here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, it's it's interesting um, on what's been said. You know, I, I'm here and running the gambit. We were supposed to be going out of town. Um, we were actually going to Texas. My wife has laid down the law. And so we're staying here with just our family. Um, you know, I think I think the biggest the biggest hurdle to this is and I'm not, you know, listen, first of all, let me say, I'm not angry with the governor. She's doing the best she can. I may not agree with things she's doing, but to attack her like she's waking up every day trying to figure out how to ruin New Mexico, I think is 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 a bad move. Mm -hmm. uh, you can only do what you can do with the information you've got at the time. But I think the, the thing to Giovanna's point and what others are saying is there is a problem when you see, you know, and I'm just I'm not picking on this person. I'm just using an example. When you see stay at home orders in California and then the governor's filmed at a private party. I think that's the problem that people are like, well, wait a minute. If they can go out, why can't I go out? Mm -hmm. So I, I would tell you it's about 50 50 um, with people that I know that are staying home. Even the ones that are staying home, though, are having some extended family. I would tell you they're not opening their doors to people that they don't normally interact with. Right. But I would tell you lot less. We normally had a party of about 50, 60 every Thanksgiving at a friend's of ours, Sally Boyce Pizza. We go to Sal's house, canceled. We're not doing that. Everybody's staying at home and we're going to try to do some, some, uh, some of this crazy video stuff. There you go. We're out of time on that one, but we're back in a minute with the secretary designate of the state health department. Sticking on the COVID-19 beat here for a minute. Uh, you probably saw in the headlines, but there is a new health secretary for the state of New Mexico. She is Dr. Tracy Collins with the Department of Population Health at UNM. She is the secretary designate and uh, will take over the job from uh, Dr. Kunkel next month. And we wanted to catch up with her and see about the involvement of her department at UNM so far in terms of COVID relief, as well as uh, her priorities and plans for switching into her new role with the Department of Health. And this is correspondent Megan Kamrick, who caught up with her on Zoom this week. In addition, you'll hear again the message about how we have to change our behaviors as much as everybody doesn't want to. It's important as we see these cases continue to climb to behave differently this holiday season. And she's got some advice and tips on that as well. So here now, correspondent Megan Kamrick. Dr. Tracy Collins picked quite a time to answer the call to serve New Mexico. The population health expert will leave UNM Hospital and become the state's next Secretary of Health. This week, NMIF correspondent Megan Kemrick grabbed a few minutes of Dr. Collins' time to talk about the pandemic response 
its impact on vulnerable communities, and how she'll approach the job she starts next month. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Collins, on New Mexico in Focus. Thanks for having me. COVID-19 is at the front of almost everyone's mind right now. How have you worked on the pandemic during your time at the University of New Mexico? So I've worked on the pandemic at University of New Mexico by helping with um, creating protocols for reopening safely and keeping students, faculty and employees safe once we are reopened. So I was involved with figuring out about messaging and assisting with that. Also helping with understanding testing and how we stand up appropriate testing sites and then also with contact tracing. So those have been my efforts to help with the pandemic. In addition to my role as Dean of a college of population health in which the epidemiologists within the college were helping with understanding the evidence and keeping the state informed. What aspects of the pandemic response are drawn from why you decided to create a career in population health? You know, I see population health um, definitely as the partnership between multiple disciplines, but largely public health and healthcare delivery. And so for me, um, this pandemic really highlights the value of public health practitioners and physicians, nurses, other healthcare professionals working together to really do a good job of containing or controlling this virus, this pandemic. The last health secretary was very open about the magnitude of the pandemic challenge and the danger of burnout. Why take this job? <laughs> yeah, a great question. I feel like, and I think Secretary Kunkel did an amazing job. Um, she really uh, stepped in and was awesome. I feel like for me, I'm coming in at a point where we have to start thinking about distrib distributing the vaccine once we have an efficacious or an efficacious vaccine, excuse me, and making sure that we do that well. So I see this as an opportunity to make a difference. You know, I came to New Mexico to help grow a very new college, the second of its kind in the country of population health. And that was an opportunity. And I see stepping in during this pandemic to help with the Department of Health to lead as another opportunity to give back to this great state. How will you guard against burnout, both for yourself and for your staff? Yes. So my approach to avoiding burnout is really to make sure that I spend quality time each day exercising, um, spending time alone, reading, reflecting, and then making time for my family. I want to also ensure that there's wellness for the folks at DOH. So ensuring that we balance commitments and responsibilities with personal time so that people don't feel like they're working 24 seven, even though a lot of how we respond to this pandemic will require a lot of hours, just ensuring that we make sure people have time off. How do you plan to bring that passion that you have for population health to your work as the DOH secretary? I think the passion will come just from making sure that we're doing a good job and so my passion for population health, I love research. I, I love taking care of patients. I love understanding the needs of diverse communities throughout the state and throughout the country. That um, passion will carry over into my role as the secretary for the Department of Health. The pandemic has had, as you know, a disproportionate impact on communities of color and low-income communities. 
people either cannot work remotely or they lost jobs in the economic turmoil. How do you plan to guide the COVID response in the state with those realities in mind? Yeah, I'm gonna use and work with the folks um, who are there to understand what the needs are for the communities of color and other communities as well. We really have to make sure when we think about essential versus non-essential that we are not biased against those who are most fragile. So the frontline workers are not just the folks delivering healthcare, which are very important and they need the N95s. We also think, need to think about the PPE for the grocery store workers, those who are driving public transportation. And so we need to make sure that we have adequate supplies for multiple communities so that they can keep themselves safe and still continue with their employment, as well as providing eye shields, things to cover the eyes. We know if we focus on the nose and mouth, which are key, but you can also contact this virus through your eyes. So it's important for people to cover their eyes as well, maybe with a plastic face shield or goggles to try and keep the virus out. New Mexico was really doing well for a long time in controlling the virus. And now we're seeing record case numbers that threaten to overwhelm our healthcare system. Do you have a sense of why this is happening and how much DOH and other agencies can do to help bring it under control? Yeah, I think what you're seeing currently with the two week uh, lockdown shelter in place is an effort to try and contain the virus. I definitely think we need to continue with the messaging around wearing a mask, washing your hands and distancing. Um, and we need to encourage people to not engage in private gatherings that involve more than five people, um, that it really needs to be a small number and you really should stick with the folks who live with you. So as we approach Thanksgiving, as we look at the holiday season, this is the time when people really like to enjoy their family. But unfortunately for 2020, this is not the year to do that. I really wanna encourage the public to hang on and wait one more year because we really need to get a solid vaccine and to get it distributed. A friend of mine who's a doctor here wrote a letter this week to the Albuquerque Journal and he argues that we need to change strategy on messaging and really show the brutal reality of COVID much as we did with smoking years ago. What do you think? Yeah, it's, you know, if you turn on the news, you can see the case count and the deaths going up every day. We're at nearly a quarter million of reported deaths. Um, I think the more we can get the attention of the public, the better. And sometimes things that are more graphic will get the attention a lot better. I'm not a huge fan of that, but I do see the value if we need to get the attention of the public for those who are naysayers that this is not a real virus, it's not that bad we do have to take additional measures. So I, I think it's realistic to go in that direction. Can I ask you a follow-up? Why are you not a fan of that? Do you think that's not an effective strategy? It's not that it's not effective. It's just that if we could get your attention without being brutal or graphic, I would prefer that. But if it's needed, we can move in that direction. Uh, my friend also argued that we need stronger enforcement on people violating public health orders. That includes even breaking up gatherings, being more aggressive about fines. Do we need to stop hoping people will do the right thing? Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question. I think that where we can enforce is more in public settings 
it is very hard to ask law enforcement to go to someone's home and break up a large gathering. Um, even those efforts have failed recently with people reporting that there's activity going on that they know isn't safe with a neighbor or so. And there's not been much response from law enforcement because it's quite challenging. And so I think as much as we can enforce it with fines um, that I actually am in agreement with that. I just think it's gonna be challenging if we ask law enforcement to start driving around to homes to break up large gatherings. We really need to trust people to understand that this is not the time for large gatherings. A survey that's gotten a lot of press in the last week found that about 40% of Americans plan to travel or plan to have Thanksgiving gatherings of 10 people or more. Uh, is there anything that we can say to folks to try and curtail this? Yes. Um, if you don't want to experience putting your loved ones at risk and others at risk, you would not have gatherings, large gatherings of that size you just mentioned. You know, if you're thinking, oh, this is Thanksgiving, I got to see mom and gra or grandmother. Yeah, you might see them at Thanksgiving, then you come back home and you may not see them at Christmas or even be able to Zoom with them because they've been exposed to COVID. This is not the time to ignore what we're telling you to do, and that's to avoid the large gatherings. Please don't. Of course, we know there are people who simply cannot work remotely if they're frontline workers or they, they can't socially distance if they live with a lot of people. How can public officials offer more support for folks like those? Yeah, um, so really trying to identify um, alternative options for keeping people safe in multi-generational homes, whether that be additional sites where you can place people if they need to quarantine or isolate. So it really is identifying alternative options for where people can safely be housed if they need to isolate. Um, are there problems that you've been able to identify that you think other departments might better be able to solve in a, aside from DOH? You know, I am so new with the position at this point, I'm still gathering more information. I'm sure as, I'm, as I transition to my start date, I will learn more and have a better understanding of where we can offload some of DOH responsibilities to other agencies. But right now, I'm not aware of anything that we really should get rid of. How do you see uh, the Department of Health coming alongside other departments um, like human services as you start your work on, on fighting the pandemic? Yeah, I see it as a partnership that we can help each other do a good job for the state um, by building on our expertise and identifying where one department can focus on a particular area and the other can address another area. I think it's the partnership piece that I look forward to um, with working with other departments, including um, human services. Do you have any thoughts about how to better handle the spread of COVID in prisons and jails? Yes, that is a very good question, like many of your questions so far. Um, I think it's understanding what space is available in the correctional facilities that might provide for spreading people out and trying keeping people safe. And then certainly looking at options for safely um, releasing persons who are nonviolent. Um, and if they're close to being released, can we expedite that date? What are other issues that you hope to work on as DOH secretary? 
Well, um, looking at recreational cannabis and understanding what the needs are in the state, um, there are several other issues that I'll be learning about, and I'm actually going to start gathering more information over the next several weeks until my official start date, which is December 14th. So I'll know more as we move forward. And finally, I was wondering if you'd share um, how you decided to go into healthcare uh, with your upbringing. Yeah, so it was really kind of multifactorial. Um, as uh, in high school, I liked chemistry and talked with a chemistry teacher about how I could use that interest. And he informed me that, you know, you could become a chemist, you might think about medical school. And so I thought, hmm, that might be an option for me. And then I had an issue with my mother, even before high school, where I felt like she really didn't get good care. She was uh, accused of drug seeking when in fact she had a small bowel obstruction. And it took a lot of visits to the ED, even uh, an attempt to fly to another state to be with her sister, who was a head nurse in Louisiana. She didn't make it because of the layover. They, people noticed she looked a little strange and not well. She was dusky, not breathing um, very effectively. So she was rushed to the hospital, had emergency surgery. And after three months of being in Denton, Texas, and then we were in Oklahoma, we'd travel every weekend to see her. She made her way back to Oklahoma to continue to recover. But it was that experience with my mother, my interest in chemistry that got me into medicine. And then as a resident in internal medicine, I realized I love taking care of patients, but I wanted to have more of an impact on how we deliver care, which led me to getting some additional degrees in public health and healthcare delivery. And those additional degrees really got me engaged in understanding the social determinants of health or those upstream factors that determine health and health outcomes. And that really led me in the, down the path towards population health. Well, Dr. Collins, we appreciate you talking with us as you make this next jump in your career to head the Department of Health. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the time. Back to the line opinion panel now. I touched on it a minute ago, but communities all across New Mexico are struggling to deal with the impacts of the surge in COVID-19 cases, and that is especially true for our Native communities, who were some of the most um, volatile hotspots when the pandemic first started. They, of course, are still struggling in lots of different ways. We're going to have much more on that in next week's show when we talk to tribal leaders who gathered this week for a summit of tribal leaders with the State Indian Affairs Department. Just uh, a horrible situation for everybody, no doubt, but these are some of our most vulnerable people, our most vulnerable communities, and also facing some very unique economic challenges, as we all are, but many tribes rely almost exclusively on their casino revenue for things like uh, firefighting efforts and other community services and of course, those casinos have had to be closed. And also, most of those employees in the casinos are tribal members as well. So uh, tune in again next week. We have a special show for you in honor of Native American Heritage Month, all about celebrating the innovation and resilience of our Native communities. But right now, let's head back to the line opinion roundtable to get their thoughts on the closing of an Indian Health Services health facility on Acoma Pueblo and how that was um, carried out and the communication with the tribes and just the ongoing struggle for our Native communities during this difficult time. 
As we just heard with Dr. Tracy Collins, Native communities have been especially hit hard by COVID-19. It was a shock then when Acoma Pueblo Governor Brian Vallo announced the Indian Health Service was closing emergency and inpatient care at the Acoma, Cañoncito and Laguna Hospital. That's 25 beds serving 9,000 people. Governor Vallo called it, quote, reckless, immoral and simply unacceptable, end quote. Now Laguna plans to open its own facility next year and the Navajo Nation built its own medical facility a few years back. So there's movement to get better health care. But Laura, the governor's issue seems to be the timing. Does he have a point here? I mean, this is such a complicated um, issue. I, I really feel like people are making decisions based on the information they have in front of them um, and uh, not necessarily taking into consideration the impact on other communities. Right. And this was one where probably com more communication would have been better. Uh, making a decision with additional stakeholders. And I think that's just sound advice for anybody in this situation. Um, you know, leadership is important. It's important to make those tough decisions. That's why people are in leadership positions. But it's also good to uh, try to get as much feedback as you can and buy in from other communities. Uh, something that drastic is going to have a very, very uh, you know, difficult impact, disproportionate impact on, other, on communities that rely on those services. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, you know, it's hard for me to, to sit here and criticize a person's decision um, based on the information they had, but it's clear that more communication and input from others would have been helpful to avoid such a, um, you know, such a difficult uh, situation for them. Mm -hmm. Hey, Giovanna, Governor Vallejo's, um issue was that he said there was no consultation with the tribe prior to the suspension of those hospital units. I, you know, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that, you know, they would hear nothing, but it seems like that's what happened here. And there's an issue of fairness trying to kind of scramble here, especially given how COVID has hit some of the tribal communities in our state. Could something have hand, been handled a little bit better from the view you're seeing this from? Yeah, I mean, as Laura said, you know, obviously this wasn't handled well. There are difficult decisions that need to be made and, and long-term planning, but someone isn't looking at the big picture here. Mm -hmm. And the fact that um, the, the federal government is bound, you know, to have uh, these negotiations and talks with the Pueblo and that that didn't happen. Um, that's a problem. And so uh, I think that we're, we're not get, I don't know that we have all the information yet about this, but clearly, you know, clearly it's gone wrong mm -hmm. and, and someone's not looking at the, the impact. I mean, regardless of, of who's doing what and making what decision that the outcome is that 9,000 residents don't have access to this facility anymore. And the nearest uh, ICU beds are in grants and there's only three of those. And right. so it's a, it's a really big problem that uh, needs, you know, more, it needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Tom, uh, those are the clinics I mentioned up top. That's, you know, good news. They're coming online at some point in Indian Health Services said they didn't have enough staff to keep the ER going at the Acoma Canyon Cito Laguna Hospital. And that's a staffing issue. They're leaning hard on that. It, 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 in my gut, it, it says that's something that should have been addressed a year ago, a year and a half ago, or at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, but something just seems to have been slid here. What's your sense of that, that reasoning that there's just not, not enough staff at this point? I think it's uh, it's it's a reasoning that is based in reality. There just are not enough 
uh, healthcare workers, medical workers to you know, that are trained to work in ICU, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that is a specific type of training. I think we've seen the issues that we've seen manifested in uh, in Acoma, Canyon Cito, and Laguna. Um, it, the same issues are impacting the old Loveless Center in right. Albuquerque. Right. You know, they have 200 beds, but not enough staff to really you know, bring that dream to reality as far as additional beds in the area. So right now, there's just a, it's a huge issue of staffing. And then also the other issue is on trust uh, because right now the messengers uh, whether it, you know, from the from the state and from the federal level, uh, we need to have, uh, you know, fresh faces with, uh, you know, fresh credentials to really start talking about the reasons why decisions were made the way that they were made in, uh, you know, in Acoma, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the the type of criteria uh, that that we need to be able to see for these other hospital uh, rooms and beds to become available. Mm-hmm. Dan, let me read you a quote. Senator Tom Udall, who was also vice chairman on the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, I might add, uh, quote, tribes across the nation have met this crisis with resilience, but their federal partners aren't rising to the challenge. It's wrong, it's dangerous, and it's a complete dereliction of duty. IHS, IHS needs to provide clear, direct answers about where the people of Acoma, Laguna, and Tehachali are going to be able to have access to emergency and hospital care during this public health crisis. Pretty strong words there. What, what do you make of his reaction? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, look, this is not an issue that we should be making political, um, any of us, you know, I I think, you know, the sheer fact of the matter is, is we've touched on this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about, you're talking about, first of all, when the pandemic started, some of the biggest news nationally was how it's affecting Native Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the biggest hotspots off, off, off the charts when this first came were Native American entity, were Native American areas. So now you're taking places that already have two or three individuals that work there, and they're saying, look, I, I got to get out of here. I'm not staying in, you know, this far out. You can't leave a facility open with the idea that it's an emergency room if you don't have people trained to handle emergency cases. And so so I think Senator Udall, um, you know, instead of waiting until this happens, having been on the Indian Health Services Committee, you know, I think that, you know, we should be looking ahead of the time saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't have three people that can work at this facility. We should have nine and we should have a rotation and we should do do something. Now, I, I think they're not thinking outside the box, the federal government, because I do think there's ways to address this. Um, and it's utilizing our military. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure how excited Native Americans would be to, to embrace that. But, you know, you can't tell a civilian you're going to go work here, but you can send you know, Army Corps doctors, you can send, you know, naval doctors and say, listen, we're stationing you at Acoma for the next 90 days. Right. Uh, but that takes a conversation. And I think when you start seeing this kind of stuff, um, you know, when you see this stuff being fought out in the media, everybody just decides to stop talking about it, which doesn't help the citizens that need the help the most. Uh, who needs the help the most is going to someone like Senator Udall and saying, all right, let's talk about this. How do we get some funding? How do we get military folks dispatched, making sure the tribes are on board to have military folks on their sovereign tribal land and say, listen, we, we've got the opportunity to do this. But I, I think it's a legitimate concern, right, that, you know, you're taking civilians mm-hmm. that are being that are living in some of the, the the hottest spots that you see on the media every day and i think they're saying look i, I don't I, I don't want to stay here the money's not worth it and they leave and when they leave 
there's not a lot of folks left that can that can man the station, which then leaves you with no option but to. But I think the, the staffing issue is more nuanced. I, I don't think it's an issue of, well, there just isn't enough staffing and people don't want to be out there, although that does contribute to it. But as far as I read in the reporting, I thought it was more about um, the the negotiations of building the new facility in Laguna and, and the transitioning um, the, the staff were offered um, options that were not, uh, they were not um, good options. And so they opted out of, of staying on. And so it, it's a much more nuanced situation that I think uh, Senator Udall and Congresswoman Holland are, are right to, to, to be asking these questions right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would also say, you know, it's interesting that you look at how many how many Native American entities we have in New Mexico, and you know, this situation is at Acoma. You know, it's not at Mescalero. It's not with the Hickorias right now. So everybody else seems to have kind of figured out how to make this work, and uh, Acoma seems to be having some heartburn with this, which they should for their for their citizens. But it, it begs the question, you know, um, where where are all the other tribal entities that are being harmed by these these actions they don't seem to be there so at some point everybody's gonna have to put the politics aside sit down and figure out a way to solve this because the only people that are hurting are the tribal members that live there that can't get the help they need good stuff dan gonna leave it there our panel has one last topic the state legislature when we return All right, by now, hopefully the message is loud and clear about the Thanksgiving holiday. We want everyone to have a happy and a healthy and a safe Thanksgiving, but that comes with different caveats this year because of COVID-19. Um, some of the advice this week from Dr. Scrace with Human Services Department and the governor um, is that it's time to even start thinking about wearing masks in your own home. The spread is just becoming exponential uh, as the numbers point out. And in this time of COVID-19, administrators at local hospitals have uh, very graciously been giving updates on their uh, operating capacity and just how they're fighting um, for all of us and for the important health care that's so necessary right now. Our hats off and appreciation to all those first responders and those health care workers. But well, we wanted to give you a bit of uh, their update this week, which once again was all focused on changing of our behaviors. And everyone's hope is that next year we can go back to our normal holiday celebrations. We know it is tough. Uh, sacrifices continue to be made, and there's a lot of fatigue out there. But you're hearing it time and time again, especially from healthcare providers now. They need us to take care of each other. Uh, they are there to treat whoever has a need. But uh, the best way to not have that need in terms of COVID is social distancing, not traveling, and wearing your masks. So here are a couple of the doctors, once again, with their advice and the importance of uh, treating this holiday season next week, or holiday next week and the entire holiday season differently this year, and how to try to turn that into a positive instead of the negative that we all know that it is. Uh, I know for my family, we're going to try to create some new traditions this year and look for new opportunities to reach out to those people uh, in our circle and encourage you to do the same. Right now, here's a hospital update. As you've seen on the show in recent weeks, hospitals and healthcare systems have joined the call for better public health behavior by New Mexicans. We heard from doctors at Loveless, 
Presbyterian and UNM again this week and asked them what people can do if family won't stay away during the holidays. Again, why they have given their thoughts about how to cope with another stay-at-home order, there's no COVID-safe option for gathering. The official word is, don't do it. I think our advice would be, first and foremost, not to gather with anyone who's outside your pod. And think about creative ways, like a Zoom dinner or dropping off food at people's doorsteps. Um, and that would be our first suggestion um, to families. If you are going to gather, and if you do have the luxury of time and are able to quarantine, if you're coming in from elsewhere, um, that would be helpful. Um, there's also uh, a few things you can do, like make sure that one pod is doing the cooking and multiple families who have not been in contact with each other are not all involved with food preparation. Um, as you've seen, the CDC guidelines suggest that if you have not had contact with people and you're coming into contact with them over Thanksgiving, to wear a mask even indoors, except when you're eating and drinking. So keep that mask on as much as possible. Um, so if you have the ability to have heaters and have your meal outside, a fire pit or, or outdoor heaters, that would be a safer way to celebrate Thanksgiving as well. But you know, all said and done, I would urge our community to think about who they want at the Thanksgiving dinner table next year as they take these decisions. We are seeing our hospitals filled well beyond what is our typical capacity. Uh, we know that these policy changes will have a positive impact on hospitalizations, will help in our ICUs, uh, and will lead patients, people, citizens, uh, to do all the right things uh, and not to engage in those risky behaviors uh, that do spread COVID-19. We do have to find ways to get past this surge. As Dr. McKee noted, uh, we're all very tired, uh, not just healthcare workers, but as uh, citizens in this state uh, of having to go under restrictions, but it is very important. Uh, we can be creative though in finding ways to get past this. Uh, so as somebody who enjoys uh, food and cooking, uh, I've done quite a bit of that uh, lately, but I would encourage uh, people to, to do as I've done uh, and figure out ways to support local uh, businesses uh, while still doing the things that we enjoy. So I've signed up for a couple of subscriptions at local restaurants uh, and continue to support them as a local business, as well as uh, do something that I enjoy. Back to the line table for one more segment. Uh, we have got a lot on the legislative front to talk about. Mentioned earlier that there will be a special session next week to deal with some of the economic impacts of COVID-19, specifically to um, mobilize some of those federal dollars in the CARES Act to help especially small businesses in New Mexico who are definitely suffering, also to deal with unemployment issues. Governor thinks that that should be able to be accomplished in just one day. Uh, but, of course, with that session and the upcoming 60-day session in early 2021, the question begs exactly how will that session happen and how can the public participate? There was movement on that this week as well as the legislature took steps to allow for 
at least public comment, especially during the 60-day session, to happen by setting up uh, remotely at the Santa Fe Convention Center. Uh, again, unprecedented times. Everybody wants the public to have the ability to offer their input to lawmakers, uh, especially in a state like ours with a citizen legislature, but there's no way around the fact that access is uh, sacrificed and that direct channel to lawmakers is hurt by all of that. So lawmakers are trying their best to figure a way around all of this, and the convention center is one potential tool for that. So the line opinion panel is going to talk about all that, including why they think maybe Albuquerque would be a better site for some of that remote uh, public hearing. So here now, once again, Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. Saying New Mexico needs to refine its pandemic relief plan and pointing a finger at the lack of federal action, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham wants to call a special session to better craft an emergency loan plan. Potentially, she'd also like to look at repurposing CARES Act funding, too, this came as a bit of a surprise to lawmakers. And Dan, is this a think fast, react fast situation? And most of the ladies and gentlemen in the House and Senate can respond in kind without too much trouble. Or does this feel a little slapdash in your view? Yeah, I mean, you know, trying to call it an emergency session right before the regular session. Um, you know, normally when that happens, it doesn't bode well for the executive when they make you come in you know one of the things that everybody rallies around is so instead of being here for two months i'm not going to be here for three months um you know and the legislature normally is kind of a place that pumps the brakes um you know everybody kind of gets all excited and then the bill gets introduced and you start having the hearings and and all of that stuff so i mean i, I think i just i think it's going to be hard pressed to get um legislators to react to this stuff quickly especially when you know, there's, I mean, you got businesses calling them, complaining about things that are happening. You got federal monies trying to come in. You got state monies. You got the, the legislature trying to figure out if it's going to be able to balance the budget, what oil and gas is doing. Mm -hmm. There just seems to be a lot on their plates to, you know, to try to, to try to figure this out in, in just a few days before they meet is, I'm not sure it's going to work out. Uh, Giovanna, beyond politics, what do you think would be the most effective form of state help at this point? More accessible severance tax loan system, maybe unemployment benefits, a straight payment, you know, or a tax credit. What's the best way we could go here if we're going to have a special? What, what should they be talking about if we're going to convene? Um, well, this, the, really the legislature needs to consider, you know, um, how, yeah, how to uh, proceed with um helping some of these people that have lost income uh through either being laid off or just you know their businesses are going um are tanking uh so there's a big budget question and um and i do think that it's appropriate to call a special session to to deal with this um and and then of course you know to have the regular session i don't know what the answers are in terms of how the funding mechanisms should work mm -hmm. i think that's the you know that's the work of the legislature and um and hopefully they have been thinking about this and making some plans um I, and i i do want to say you know the governor's absolutely right we haven't had uh the federal uh support that we've needed um and that is really really hard i think uh that there there are dollars available as was 
you know, we were discussing this before we came on, on live. Um, but the thing is, is that for small businesses to access those dollars, it's really, really hard. And right. so there needs to be some, some, some structure, some system put, put in place to, to assist those small businesses to access the dollars. Because right now, the, only the big businesses are, are getting to do that. Mm -hmm. Tom, uh, the governor hasn't really put it out there saying this is what she would like to see happen. Maybe that's a good way to goose this thing along. But same question. If she is to say something, what's the best bet for New Mexicans? A straight payment, tax deferment? What's, what's your, your back of the envelope gut thought on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, playing off of, you know, uh, Dan and Giovanna, what I will say is that I think the governor will be successful with whatever her plan is if she does indeed call. Um, a special session is just to keep it simple mm -hmm. because, you know, anything that's complex is just dead in the water, you know, so with the, you know, a 24 hour session, let's say it happens and it should happen in Albuquerque, by the way, and supposed to Santa Fe, it's a whole other issue. We can tackle that. Go ahead and pick up on that after you finish your first point. It's, yeah. it's, a, legit, it's a legit <laughs> but, point. Uh, yeah, it just, it, it really should be, um, you know, something that's very simple, something that helps those who are unemployed, helps small business, and it shouldn't in, entail a whole lot of paperwork in connection with it. Mm -hmm. And as a quick follow-up, um, you know, the, there's a lot of talk about the session being moved over into the Santa Fe Convention Center. Mm -hmm. Why not move it down to the Albuquerque Convention Center, uh, where you have all the media have greater access, uh, you have greater access by the public, and you have, a, you have a center that can really accommodate more people than you can up in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. And then when everything returns to normal, whatever that looks like everything can head back to Santa Fe. That's a, that's a point. Laura, would you agree with that? I mean, I've seen people on Facebook starting to say that too. It makes sense. It's not as much travel for the folks down south to have to go to, you know, save an hour, but it's a big hour. So I think that in terms of moving people, it's not that big of a deal. But when you talk about moving equipment, it's going to be a big deal. Okay. Uh, moving down the street to the Santa Fe Convention Center when it comes to all of the infrastructure, because you're still going to need to have a fair amount of equipment involved, um, people mic'd up, you know, printers going, computers going, IT, you know, ensuring security, web access, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think it depends if they plan to sort of social distance and have, you know, their desks or whatever. Moving things down the street um, is probably more efficient and less costly than it would be to move things to Albuquerque. But Laura, do I understand um, it correctly? They just want to use the convention center for hearings and not necessarily for other- but even if they, Right, I mean, even if they did that though, I mean, I still think that there's a fair amount of equipment um, mm -hmm. that has to be moved. There's a fair amount of infrastructure that has to be set up. Uh, you know, it's a logistical nightmare, I think, for the legislature. We're not exactly, we're not a mobile kind of um, setup at this Party, point. Sir. Yeah, and they're already set up in in the Capitol building to do a lot of things online. All of the committee rooms have access. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know where we are with the discussion about just doing it online. You know, just doing it online. I know there's well, an that'd issue. That'd be a bad move just to have it online. I mean, just because when you talk about uh, open government, you know, there's no better way to hide government than to, you know, go into a Zoom because you never know what other types of, there's just a lot less accountability. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, of course. Administrative, there's a lot of agencies right now that are still conducting things online. Um, the PRC meets every week and they do it online. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's- And we're also not in a situation where we can do things in an ideal, in an ideal way, right? Like we're in an emergency situation here and we need to be, you know, making plans that reflect that. And I think I've I've been in, involved in some of the interim committee hearings, as as you all have probably. 
And uh, I've been impressed with it. You know, I mean, the legislators are getting the hang of it. The staff is, is really doing a good job. And the public comment uh, section of the meeting seems to be working. Let me, add, let me pick up on that with Dan. You just mentioned public comments. Public access, Dan, is going to be an issue. Republicans made a, 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 this an issue when we first started kind of going through this idea that, you know, public access is not a good thing for our democracy, having it limited. Can we pull this off and still have the public getting the same amount of access they've always had? I mean, you know, I, I don't know how much access the public's had in the first place anyway, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the committee rooms are small. They get, you know, when the hot button topics come up, they limit people from coming in and they, you yeah. know, people get there first to take up the chairs. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I just say, you know, there's no doubt we're in a different time right now. But every time we have issues like this, we're willing to give up freedoms and give up opportunities and give up our ability of oversight because we think it helps the situation. The reality is we give it up. And when the situation corrects itself, we never get it back. And, and, and that's, that's a potential problem, right? If all of a sudden the best way to do this is through Zoom meetings, we had to do it through the pandemic. Oh, now we're through the pandemic, but I don't want to ride up from Roswell anymore. So I can just vote, you know, sitting at my house in Roswell and not have to do anything. I just, it's just, a, it becomes a slippery slope. And especially in a state where we have such limited access to the internet already. Right. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of folks in a lot of areas that if they don't have the opportunity to come walk the halls and, you know, go to a committee meeting, they're not going to know what's going on or be but heard. We, we, yeah, and that goes to the point of really needing to increase broadband access statewide. Mm -hmm. So I think that should be a, a, a real priority here because at, when I was in, in attending some of the interim committee hearings this fall, um, we were hearing from people from all over the state that I have never seen in the roundhouse. And they were there giving their two minutes yep. public comment um, each legislator, you know, had to listen, look at them, um, and and I thought that was really great. So I think there are some actual advantages to, to having. Yeah, I, I, would, I would tell you that you know having just when you say that each legislator sits there has to look at them. I can tell you what you don't have to sit there and look at them when they're on a Zoom. But I can tell you I watched personally and was personally involved in when people would come to testify and you wouldn't give them the two cents, you wouldn't give them their two minutes. And then you'd walk out in the hallway and they made sure they found you to That's let right. you know what you know i <laughs> guess you could try to zoom back in and tell people what you think but you know that personal contact is really hard not yeah. to I just there was a lot of accountability i saw i i mean i could go on for hours about the accountability i saw in the hallways uh when times came when constituents would walk up and say all right laura you know i supported you and this is what i want and you'd see laura go hmm all right maybe, maybe i need to rethink my position and uh i just but think that when when you go to the zoom stuff and you lose that personal interaction which is what our citizen legislature is based on i mean if we're going to go to this type of deal then we ought to talk about not having a citizen legislature what makes our state so so unique mm -hmm. is that the concept of you're supposed to be able you're, as a legislator you're supposed to be living in your district interacting with people people can come up anybody can talk to the legislature we met at certain times the reason we meet at these times is because of the farming and ranching community it was so heavy when we started as a state this is when their time is dormant they could all come up um it's just it's just interesting i mean as we yeah. move technology we're moving away from personal contact and let's also uh, acknowledge that the people that really have the most access are the paid lobbyists I mean, you know, I, I get it and I hear you about you can walk up to your legislator later um, during the session and that's absolutely, you know, cr crucial. Uh, but but also 
the reality of it is that 90% of the access really is the lobbyists that are paid to be there. I'm not sure if I can necessarily agree with you. I know you're just throwing a number out there in 90%, but Dan makes a good point. That contact, that hallway stuff, that means something. It has value, you know, for, for legislators as well. Let me get Tom in on this. You've spent your, a, a little bit of your time up there as well. Uh, got about just under a minute. Tom Garrity, what do you think about the public access and the possibility of having it diminished to a, a critical point? Uh, yeah, well, you know, to Dan's point, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, uh, kind of legislation, for lack of a better term, takes place outside of the committee room. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is in that face-to-face -face contact. And it's it's not that nobody's being nefarious or anything like that. It's just when you can actually grab somebody and say, hey, you know what, let's talk about this specific piece of legislation. Yep. So, you know, I, I think the more we can just shed a light and, you know, really creating more of an atmosphere where everybody can safely get in the same room together uh, and, uh, and discuss ideas and, and politics, I think that that's a good thing. Good stuff, guys. Thanks to you all for studying up once again this week. We really appreciate it. And please stay safe over the holiday. All right, before we go this week, want to share a little bit of extra content with you. We always start our taping on Thursdays for The Line with a little warm-up that we stream out to Facebook Live. It's a chance for The Line panelists uh, to talk about something we don't have time to talk about in the full show, we call it One More Thing, and I thought it'd be fun this week to share that with you here as well in case you missed it. But also want to let you know you can always follow along with everything with the show on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram. We're in all those places. Love to talk to you there. Love to engage with you there. So come find us. Come tell us what's going on in your world. But here now, one more time, the line panelists with their thoughts on some of the other news of the week. I'm Gene Grant. We're here in the studios of New Mexico PBS. I am anyway with our line opinion panelists. We're about to record this week's show. But before we do, I want to zoom with these guys, take a little warm up, taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. Laura Sanchez, I see you there. Thank you for joining us. As always, what's your one more thing this week? Oh, well, it's hard for me to not uh, comment on the um, Roswell City Councilwoman's uh, tweet recently or Facebook post. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and explain uh, that for the folks, if you would, real quick. Oh, well, it was something else. She uh, um, uh, now she claims that she did this on her on her private Facebook, but I think we can all agree that uh, there's really no privacy right. when it comes to uh, elected officials. Mm -hmm. You're always in the spotlight, so you have to be uh, you know careful. But I think it's telling. She basically uh, was commenting on Facebook and equated um, Kamala Harris's um, heritage, the fact that she had an African American or actually a Jamaican um, father and an Indian um, mother. Uh, and she was talking about how does that make her black? And then she uh, she equated that to a type of cow mating with another cow and then coming up with a, a black Angus um, offspring. Lovely. It was really offensive. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I think she tried to explain that, well, she's she's, uh, you know, comes from Roswell and there's rural um, areas there. And so she's all about agriculture and blah, blah, blah. But I think it was just extremely off-putting to anybody who read it. And, um, uh, you know, my, my significant other is from Roswell. And I think we both, when we heard it, were shocked. And um, certainly, I don't think that represents at all mm -hmm. what people in Roswell believe. Um, you know, my experience has been that people from Roswell, um, including my good friend Dan, um, are extremely respectful and, uh, and honest, hardworking people and don't uh, use those kind of comments, uh, even privately. So it was really shocking to read that. And I think that she needs to um, 
you know, she needs some serious, uh, I mean, it was just came across as completely ignorant. So I think she needs some um, cultural education, if nothing else. You know, I see a lot of this question of whether she is black or not on Facebook. A lot of folks just don't, you know, quite understand <laughs> what identifying is, you know, it's just an amazing thing. Well, she doesn't look black. She looks Indian to me. It's like, well, I really don't think you have that right. You should just listen to Miss Harris and just go with what she says. You no, know, when I lived in Tucson one time, I was told by somebody at a grocery store when I, I was, I had to, I was paying with a card and they saw my name and they go, oh, you don't even look Mexican. Oh, for God's sake. And I'm like, what does that mean? Am I supposed wow. to say thank you? Like, I don't right. understand what that means. <laughs> supposed so to be a compliment? Really, those kinds oh, yeah, of yeah. things, like, uh, think before you speak. Interesting. I appreciate that. It's, it's, I'm sure she's, she, meaning our friend in Roswell's hearing it. She's probably been educated at this point. Speaking of Roswell, Dan Foley, he's not there. He's in Rio Rancho. Our man, one of our line regulars. What you got going on this week, sir? What do I have going on this week? I'm yeah. locked in my house with my family. That's what I got going on. This week. So if I start blinking like this, if you see me, is that, do you guys get, please, please come get me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your one more thing this week while we're getting some troops together to rescue you? Uh, you know, I, my, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate Laura's comments and, you know, I always try to, to keep it a little different than, but everybody else goes on with the one more thing. You know, I thought it was interesting that now we have Lobo football in Las Vegas, Lobo basketball in Texas, Thank you. New Mexico State basketball in, in Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I mean, I get it. I, I get the whole pandemic stuff. I just, it just, it, I'm just not getting my hands, my head around all this, right? I mean, especially basketball. You could completely bubble these guys. Um, there's a way to make this work. Right. And, we just don't seem to have it just seems to be an all or nothing. I know we're going to talk about this, but it's just interesting how these kids are, you know, and, and th these kids are not only now have we asked a lot of these student athletes to leave their families and come to our schools to go to school. Now we've moved them to another place. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't seem like they're living in a tent and squalor somewhere. I mm -hmm. mean, it seems to be that they're, they're they better doing not okay. for 70 grand a week. They better not be. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the end result, the one, the one, the part that I have that I, you know, I, it's going to be interesting to see is how New Mexico State's going to make it work, right? I mean, we've we've already been told how UNM's going to make it work. The Mountain West, football-wise, they're going to get five million dollars if they play, right? And then spend seven hundred thousand or whatever it is to make five million. I, I haven't heard the numbers for New Mexico State yet, and so it's going to be interesting to see how they make that work. And but it's been interesting if you saw the pictures online. Uh, Chris Jans, they're at a, they're at a, a place in Phoenix, and they've turned a ballroom into a basketball court. Huh. They brought in outdoor baskets and got them set up, and they're practicing inside there. So, you know, it's it seems like the the last thing is is all sense of normalcy, you know, is not normal today. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, everybody seems to be trying to reach. It's been interesting how the smallest bit of normalcy is something you want to grasp onto, whether it's watching a sporting event or getting a special food or being able to go to a restaurant for a cup of coffee or something that normally we took for granted today, mm -hmm. you know, people seem to be really striving to get taking, you know, try to accomplish. Exactly. Well, we'll see what we get for our money. You know, the 70 grand a week it's costing our Lobos to be out there. It's, I mean, remains to be seen. Let's just put it that way. Giovanna Rossi, we haven't seen you for a while. Collective Action Strategies, welcome back. It's been a, a few weeks, a few months maybe. What's your one more thing this week? Thanks, good to be here. Mm -hmm. I have something to share about, 
and the work of Native Women Lead. I don't think it's been really covered as much as it could be or, or talked about in terms of how women own businesses and particularly Native women own businesses. Giovanna, can I, um, can I interrupt for a quick sec, Giovanna? Your signal kind of bounced there during a very important part of your setup. Could I ask you just to kind of set that up once again? My fault. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope my connection is okay. You look better. Okay. Uh, better. Uh, so I really want to call out Native Women Lead, which is an organization that uh, promotes Native-owned uh, women-owned businesses that are Native-owned, and um, they uh, support Native women leadership, um, uh, Native women leaders mm -hmm. in new positions. And um, I think this is something that really hasn't gotten that much attention. Um, during these last you know, six to eight months, they've been working really hard to promote um, family-owned, Native women-owned businesses to, uh, to pivot and you know, do things differently and sell their um, products online. And it's really exciting what they're doing. And they, um, they did a whole huge project with, where they, they purchased product from Native women-owned businesses, uh, very, very small businesses, purchased this product and then packaged it up and sent it all over the world as care packages to, uh, you know, to, to people. So, so it was a way to really invigorate and support. And, um, and I think that we're going to see a lot more from, from these businesses and these women. Mm -hmm. You know, People will persevere even in the hardest of times. You know what I mean? It's, that's an encouraging story. I love that. I think it's, um, thank you for sharing it. Absolutely. Tom Garrity, the Garrity Group, one of our regulars, of course, on the line. Good to see you, sir. What's your one more thing? Well, my one more thing is social media. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, <laughs> it, at, through the election, I was just kind of, you know, I got tired of all the little notifications saying, have you voted or, you know, <laughs> um, you know, all these different pop-ups that we see whenever we log on to the different platforms. But then after the election, everybody, all the different platforms decide to update their, um, their software. And so, you know, Facebook now looks like mission control. Uh, Instagram is trying to be more like TikTok, and um, and Twitter is now being more like Instagram yes. uh, with their stories. So everybody is, just seems like that they're getting into each other's space, and as a user, it just is quite frankly a bit much. <laughs> Isn't so. that something? And then we've got other social media going out there. We've got Parler out there, of course, for our conservative friends are flocking to that outside of Facebook. So it's interesting, this whole little social media thing's in flux, isn't it? Not that Facebook's ready to fall. I'm not, you know, getting at that, oh. but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's, it's not ready to fall, but right. it's definitely, uh, all of this change all at once sometimes is a bit much. So. Yeah, exactly right. Hey, we'll have to wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights at 7 o'clock and Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. That'll do it for this week. want to remind you about a couple of other things. Our podcast, Growing Forward, you've heard me talking about that. It's all about cannabis and the cannabis industry in New Mexico. The, we just got done a bit ago talking about the special session and the regular session next year where lawmakers will once again be considering legislation to legalize recreational cannabis in New Mexico. 
Arizona voters just approved that a couple weeks ago now. And so if it's going to happen, the clock is really ticking. uh, And we wanted to dive in on all the issues around that. And we released a new episode this week. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Growing Forward and rate, subscribe, review, do all that for us. We appreciate it. Really interesting show this week uh, that looks at tribal issues around cannabis. We've talked extensively through this series about how complicated an issue medical cannabis, recreational cannabis is in general. Uh, Tribes, of course, uh, sovereign communities, uh, they have sovereignty, and so it gets a lot more complicated to them, uh, uh, and especially that sovereignty issue. They uh, also have a lot of relationships with the federal government, though, so it can be extra dangerous waters to walk in when you consider that uh, cannabis is still Schedule One illegal substance on the federal level, even though we're seeing states like Arizona uh, legalize recreational use. And you've probably seen in the headlines just a fascinating story about a hemp growing operation on the Navajo Nation up in the northwest corner of the state that was actually raided recently um, and uh, found what appears to be cannabis in there with THC in it too. Uh, we still don't have a lot of the details on the fallout from that, arrests and that kind of thing, but it's a very sordid story about the possibility of human trafficking and, and just a whole slew of issues. Touch on that a little bit, even though um, that that facility was supposed to be about hemp, which is not necessarily the focus of the podcast, but obviously hemp and medical cannabis and recreational cannabis all connected. So really interesting listen. Encourage you to go check that out if you get a chance. And you can also listen back to all of our past episodes as well. And I also want to remind you about our special investigative project, Groundwater War. You can go to New Mexico PBS, and there is a link there right on the front page. Just scroll down a bit, look for Groundwater War. This is, again, our investigation into PFAS, which are a whole family of chemicals that uh, are in all kinds of things, from microwave popcorn to food packaging to waterproofing for clothes. But in particular, we're focused on how These chemicals were in uh, foams, firefighting foams, used by the military. And there are now a handful of locations and military installations in New Mexico that have been identified to have contamination from these PFAS chemicals and is even threatening groundwater and has seeped into those uh, groundwater aquifers and things uh, at several locations in the state. And we've got a new video up there this week about why it's so important that everybody know and care about this, especially because, as you will see and hear, the military doesn't seem to be so interested in even identifying how uh, these chemicals are spreading, and they're especially hard to clean up. Working on that project with uh, Laura Paskus, who you know here from our monthly R-Land segment, and also in conjunction with PBS's Frontline. So, Groundwater War, go give that a, a view and a listen and check out that website as well. A lot of really great reporting there. We will leave you this week with some final thoughts, as we always do, from host Gene Grant. And, of course, this week it is about the holidays, and in particular shopping, and the phenomenon that you've all heard and seen and read about this week, the hoarding, the buying of toilet paper again uh, as the reset, the shelter-in-place goes back into effect. Some interesting reporting this week about why people do that, even though those stores aren't closed Also, good reminders, you'll hear from Gene about um, small business 
Saturday, which is uh, a week from tomorrow, and why it's so important we support those local businesses. Again, have a safe and a happy and a healthy holiday weekend. We thank you for listening, tuning in, engaging, and we will talk to you again next week on New Mexico In Focus. Over the weekend, Channel 4 caught up with a psychiatrist asking why some of us shop the way we do in uncertain times. What is this uncontrollable urge to overbuy items like TP and paper towels and everything else when the stores aren't even closing? It turns out that that itch that must be scratched is a result of a millennia of human experience to not just survive, but have a sense of control in uncertain times. I can get that. Needless to say, we are complicated beings. These things beat deeply in some of us, for others a little less so. Now, next Friday is Black Friday, the now traditional opening bell for holiday shopping, mega savings. But the day after is Small Business Saturday, another and possibly more important retail tradition. Now that we have all the TP we could use, how about we give some love for our struggling retailers next week and right through the holiday season. Enjoy a safe Thanksgiving, everybody, however it may be for you this year.